Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Poetry on the Air which is the podcast that myself, Poppy Jennings and Jack Collins have set up for Leeds Poetry Festival. Jack isn't here today so instead I've been joined by the lovely Rachel Hall who is a newly qualified social worker with a love of pop music and performance poetry. She is passionate and writes from her experiences of women's issues. So, hi Rachel. Hello. How are you doing? You okay? I'm good, I'm good. I've just got back from festival, so I'm a bit smelly and a you bit feeling tired. it? <laughs> but I'm good, I'm good. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about the kind of work you do and the kind of work that you're going into? Yeah, sure. Um, so, kind of, the work I'm going into is kind of more directed at children's social work and kind of child protection and, like, mm-hmm. safety around children. But a lot of that is to do with mothers and things that mothers go through and kind of stemming from that is, like, domestic violence and um you know substance abuse and kind of all the things that women experience when they're looking after children that need protecting by social workers and a lot of that is like you know how do we protect women that are in these abusive relationships and kind of the underbelly of that is like how does that look in my own life Mm -hmm. as a young person as a young woman and looking at like the safety of women and things that women experience on mass you know like we are a massively targeted societal group when you look at mm. physical violence and sexual violence um and I think that's a, a big area of interest for me like moving forward going into social work as a profession mm. so on top of that you're also a poet yes <laughs> How, do you feel that your work does lend a lot to the poetry that you write and the kind of poetry that you want to read as well yeah I think the poetry that I read is a bit more varied and I'm really willing to kind of broaden that a bit but I think the own, my own poetry that I produce comes from anger a lot mm. of the time and like previously that's been about breakups <laughs> and things but I think as I've got a bit older and I've matured in the stuff that I want to talk about and want to say while I'm up on a stage that does look like saying you know this is what women experience and this is why I'm angry about it and potentially feeling like I have something unique to say being a disabled woman about that and just seeing something in society that I can reflect w- like through poetry that I'm really angry about so do you feel like, I mean, at the minute, obviously society is looking pretty bleak. Mm. Um, do you feel like it's fueled quite a lot of what you've done recently? You've just finished your dissertation yes, as yeah, well. Intense. Very intense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of my friends that I'm joined by will definitely be able to uh, agree with that statement. Um, yeah, so I've just written a dissertation about um, sexual assault and how that impacts young people and like what that means for social workers working within that sphere of work and um I think yeah it's heavily influenced the work I've done and I think when I was choosing what I wanted to write my dissertation on I was thinking but it really needed to be something that I felt passionate about and I think the way that young people are having sex is changing and it's really heavily influenced by pornography and I think we're coming into a new wave of like kids sending nudes in the classroom and that being a really normal thing and my dissertation started by having a conversation with a young woman in my life that was saying that that was happening to her and she was sat That's in so the classroom yeah trying to receive an education and like she could see a picture of her friend on this boy's phone oh my God. and she said that boys in her school were organizing like a slap the girls ass month just as a kind of way to grope them in the corridors and I think that really made me angry and mm. I think that's what kind of drove the dissertation that was just like these these are things that like you know 15 year old girls are experiencing and that's mm-hmm. very normal and actually I think it's way more normal now than it was when I was in school for girls to be sending nudes and to be receiving sex education from pornography because the sex education they're receiving in school is not good enough in, yeah. in their opinion you know like only 25% of young people in Britain say that their sex education was good so I think we need to be listening to them. Do you feel like it impacts women or girls differently as well? Definitely. And I think, you know, when I had sex education in high school, we were divided. Yeah. So, like, the girls were in one room, the boys were in one room. And I think the conversations that we were having were very different. And I think, you know, the boys were sitting there going, oh, you know, we kind of we kind of know this. Mm-hmm. And the girls were sitting there going, we kind of know this, but the things that they know are very different. And, like, you know, we're told to protect ourselves at parties and not drink too much and look after our friends and all that kind of stuff and I don't know if that's the same messaging that boys are receiving Mm -hmm. and I think yeah like there's all of these like kind of wider societal messages around like what is perceived as sexy and like (laughs) you know how young girls are sexualized and that's not 
I'm not saying that men don't think like that and that they need to be perceived as being attractive because they do, but I think girls have a much bigger role within that to be perceived as sexy by Mm -hmm. (laughs) a boy in their class or a guy in their lecture. And I think that is a much bigger issue for girls, in my opinion. Yeah, I think as well, you, you, you kind of... You start to see it now, especially obviously because we go to a lot of poetry events mm-hmm. um, and you see a lot of female artists or non-bin- non-binary artists talking about this experience, but it's almost like it's too late. Like you shouldn't have to hear people talk about it after the fact. Like this is stuff that should be dealt with when you are young, when mm. you are supposed to get sex education. Yeah. So now it's like, do you feel like there's a, there's a massive movement in writing about these experiences that women have? and how poetry is changing yeah and I would agree with you I would agree with like a lot of the stuff that especially in the poetry sphere that I've been kind of receiving is like after it's happened and Mm -hmm. people are writing about their assaults or people are writing about like oh you know this is what I would do to prepare to go to a party or like this is how I would prepare like not to get spiked and it's kind of like we see this all the time it's kind of like I'm gonna buy a scrunchie that can cover my drink so nobody puts anything in it and it's like the responsibility is on women Mm -hmm. but the stuff that we're reading about is about you know somebody writing about their assault that happened 10 years ago or somebody's writing about something that's already happened and I think you know it's two different ballparks you know education and poetry are very different but I think poetry can be used to say that like we need to catch this earlier and we need to actually be putting kind of a net around that information that we're giving to young people yeah earlier because you know the way that they view sex as a commodity or like something that they're owed and I'm speaking you know generally about men and like Mm -hmm. what they feel sex is and kind of the way that we look at virginity and like you should have lost your virginity before you go to university that kind of thing like the feel that the fact that they feel that that is something that they can get from a woman Mm. is very normalized and it's very like you know we see that a lot and I think the messages that young people are being sent about that that that's just normal and that girls need to make themselves look presentable for that to happen Mm. and that you know that's a naturally occurring thing and also that like drink is a really like normal thing that's involved in consent and like I read one paper that was like we thought that alcohol was part of consent we Mm -hmm. thought that that you know when somebody gets drunk in a bar they're consenting yeah and that it's that easy to kind of you know get someone into bed yeah that like if they're drinking and they're out and they're having a nice time or they're dressed a certain way yeah it must mean that that's what they're after yeah and not I think just that they're there for themselves yeah and I think when you're a certain age you're kind of receiving these messages and it's a lot harder to break free from that and you're kind of like well this is what everyone else is doing everyone else mm. is going out and wearing a dress that looks like this or drinking this much everyone else is having sex you know that's what I should be doing and I think I remember sitting in one of my first lectures at university and my lecturer saying that it's illegal to have nudes on your phone of your girlfriend under the age of 18, even if you're in a consenting relationship and she's agreed to send you those because she's your partner, mm-hmm. you've got child pornography on your phone. It's illegal to send them, it's illegal to have them. Like, why was I told that at university yeah, and I'm not in school. in school before I turned 18? Because I know that a lot of my friends engaged in that when they wanted to and they believed that that was consensual mm-hmm. because they were sending it to their partner and you know we don't know what their partner did with that but their partner had child pornography on their phone and I don't think you know nobody knew that so mm. I think this is the kind of stuff that kids in school need to be told not when they're in university but when they're in school. Mm. Do you think that the kind of conversations around protecting children is overly controversial? Like almost that the idea that, oh, well, we can't tell kids that stuff when they're young because then we're exposing them to something horrible. Is that a good enough reason not to talk to kids about this stuff? I don't know. I think I w- there's a lady called Peggy Organstein and she's really incredible and she talks a lot about this and she kind of says, well, you know, toddlers masturbate mm. and they do do that. And like we think that's vulgar as adults because we're sexualizing. Because they're babies yeah, and we don't want to think about it. We don't want to do that, but actually that's something that they engage in and mm-hmm. they don't know that that's what they're doing. And it would be really awkward for a toddler to be sat at the dinner table and go, like, you know, be touching themselves. Yeah. And for the parent to say, stop touching your vulva. You know, that's, yeah. in, that's inappropriate. <laughs> but, like, actually there was a really interesting theory around, like, somebody compared it to driving a race car. And, like, if you're hyping up the idea of driving a race car 
and you're telling, let's say, a little boy about like the fun of yeah. driving a race car, they're really going to want to do that. So this was this person was arguing against, you know, showing human bodies to five year olds, for example, like in their sex education school, and he was saying like. Well, you know, if you show them this early, then they're going to want to do it. Like, they're going to want to go home and touch themselves. And it's like, but we know that that's already normal. They're yeah. already touching themselves. They just don't know what it is that they're doing. It's like the over-sexualization of the human body. A human yeah. body, which is totally normal to kind of be aware of yeah. and to know what you have. Especially when, you know, like, talking to girls about different body parts that yeah. they have compared to boys. Yeah. Or even, obviously, like, intersex individuals. Yeah. Everybody has different biology. And biology is t- completely normal. It's not something that's sexual. Yeah. So why don't we talk about it? And does that affect how adult men view women's bodies? Because mm-hmm. they're not allowed to see them as anything other than sexual objects. Yeah, but also yeah. like as a woman, like I still could not tell you what the different parts of my vulva are called. Yeah. As a 22-year-old woman, I might be able to look at a diagram and go, well, I think that's called that. Mm-hmm. But is that not awful? Like not being able to name what's in you and on you like that introduces such an idea of shame around your own body Mm -hmm. and I think if a woman feels shameful about her like you know genitals and her genitalia like how how do men feel like Mm. you know if we can't talk about it and we can't call it what it is and we can't say well this is what I have and this is what I know to be true about that like if we can't respect ourselves enough or actually maybe like you know people that are our educators our parents like if they don't respect women enough to tell us this even you know like yes we're talking about sex but we're also talking about basic biology for an intersex person like how Mm -hmm. much shame are they going to feel if somebody doesn't sit them down and say well this is why you're different and I think there is this idea of kind of grouping everybody together and going well we're all the same we're all equal Mm -hmm. and in some spheres that is true but in that case, it's like that person is very different yeah. to the next person. And I think not talking about it makes a child feel very shameful about that. Mm-hmm. And I think if you grow up feeling shameful about that, you're inviting shame from mm. another person. And if you don't respect your body enough walking into sexual situations and you can't say, well, this is what I've got and this is what I do or don't like, mm-hmm. how can you expect a sexual partner to do that? Yeah, it's true. It's I mean, how can you... It's like, you know, talking about the fact that a lot of women have sex before they've even explored masturbation Mm -hmm. themselves or the first time that they ever really explore porn is well after they've had sex for the first time. Yeah. And it's like, well, is should that be normal? Should it be normal for women to, you know, it's the kind of the stereotype of, oh, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. But should it? Should it actually hurt the first time or the first few times? Is that not something that you should be having a conversation about? Yeah. Um, And it does, it it lends to this shame that women have of their own bodies, which does unfortunately end up creating situations where they don't know when they're experiencing trauma or they don't know when they're experiencing assault because they're always just taught to, that, that their sexuality exists purely when they're in relation to another person Mm -hmm. usually a man yeah so there's this this massive lack of liberation for women and their bodies yeah that they should have regardless yeah and it's just not really talked about no not at all and i was talking to a friend the other day about like her own relationship and when she wanted to start engaging sexually with her partner and i had sort of made the suggestion of like have you tried masturbating before Mm. suggesting to him that you want to have sex and she was like no and she hadn't considered that that was something that she could do and I was trying to very lightly explain like well if you do want to try that like with yourself and create that sexual relationship with yourself you can walk into that situation and say actually I know that this is what I do or don't like and this is where I like to be touched and this is where Mm -hmm. I don't like to be touched because I've tried that like it avoids those situations of like you know nuance where you're not entirely sure if you are consenting yeah and also that there's a wider message of like the man needs to finish and that's a successful sexual experience and actually like there's not enough information about like mm-hmm. female orgasm anywhere really at yeah. all and I think we deem a successful sexual experience as a man enjoying himself yeah and like you the woman are there to you know that whole phrase of like lie back and think of England you're, yeah. you're there to you're there to make him enjoy himself like (laughs) terrible it is awful yeah and I think you know even masturbation it was not a discussion like going back to having conversations with school-age kids 
you know we don't have to sit there and say go home and try it yeah we just need to say like this is something that exists yeah and actually kind of talking about porn i would argue that actually a lot of young people are looking at porn before they've had sex yeah so they're walking into having sexual experiences going well this is what your body should look like and you should be completely shaven Mm -hmm. and actually you should sound like this and one of my friends said that like a previous partner of hers told her that he was feeling insecure in their sexual relationship because she wasn't making the noise that he'd seen women make on porn it's that thing isn't it porn is not sex education but at a young age or even not even just at a young age but at an age where you've not really talked about it you don't know that that's not what it should be like because no one is saying porn isn't real yeah it's just not and also like when you look at the people that are creating porn Mm -hmm. like i read this one article i can't remember her name but she was talking about being a creator of pornography and she was saying well i've now been handed this baton of being a sexual educator without asking for it i want to engage in my profession i want to do my job Mm -hmm. but now i have to recognize that young people are like flogging to this site to receive sex education from me which is not my responsibility yeah and that's not why i chose to go into making pornography which yeah you know she doesn't want that responsibility yeah. why are we putting the responsibility of sex education on porn stars movie yeah. stars yeah. that are there to do a job to create a fantasy yeah which is fine you know it's it's the same reason why so many women now are finding validation and kind of profession in sites like OnlyFans. Yeah. Because they're in control of their sexuality and the way that they want to profit from it mm. instead of relying on that in somebody else's hands. It's giving women the power to work in that industry if mm-hmm. they want to and not being taken advantage of as much or not being, um, n- not having that position taken away from you, mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see how people are engaging with media differently now in Mm. that kind of industry definitely definitely and i think OnlyFans is really interesting and i watched i think it was called girlhood it was a documentary on bbc and they got kind of like six female celebrities together just to kind of discuss like female issues and they had uh an OnlyFans creator come on and like speak to these women and like some of them were like you know 21 and were very kind of clued up on what that meant and some of them were like (laughs) in their 60s and just did not know what was going on Mm. and like this girl was kind of stood there going but I've got the control like if someone wants a picture of my feet I can send them it that's that's fine like you know I like I've got the power and these kind of younger women that were on the show with these older women were trying to be like yeah but can you not see that she's engaging in it by choice and these older women really struggled and they were like but she's still at the end of the day being sexualized and I think you know yes it's a woman's choice and yeah. i think at the end of the day that's what it comes down to like men are sexualizing her mm-hmm. that's their business if she's choosing to be sexualized by men for money that's yeah. her business because we you know we engage in it in private yeah. relationships when we're in a relationship with a partner long term or short term we are engaging with that aspect of ourselves where we are sexualizing ourselves and our partners yeah. so why is it okay for men to benefit from the sexualization of women but why can't women benefit from that sexualization as well because they're the ones at the end of the day whose bodies are at the forefront of that sexualization so they might as well profit from it exactly you know and if they're profiting off men while doing that is that really a bad (laughs) thing (laughs) um and also you know if men are willing to enter that space and give their money freely yeah exactly they're freely paying for the content yeah so it might as well go to the woman that's creating it and not somebody else a third party or a different website that is not really giving any profit to the woman creator at all yeah exactly and i think you know when we think about kind of traditional prostitution and and what that did and does still look like for some women OnlyFans and other websites like that offer a much safer space for women to do that and Mm -hmm. if they're if they need to or want to enter a position where they're selling their body that can be done in a much safer way like from their own home yeah exactly which i think is a big takeaway from that yeah okay well thank you (laughs) um i'm gonna pass over the mic now because you are joined by two guests yep you're joined by izzy bond and leonie howell so do you want to tell us a little bit about them and kind of introduce them? Yes, of course. Um, so these are two of my pals um, and they're really great. And I asked them to hop on the podcast with me um, because in lockdown, we created a poetry group to meet together outside, <laughs> spaced apart, to share our poetry um, as a kind of yeah healing thing, I would say, and like to let us go through 
what we were feeling um, during lockdown and both of them are incredible poets and they have a lot to say, I think. Um, so that was why I invited them. So hello, guys. Hi. Hi. <laughs> oh, you're yeah. very welcome. <laughs> Thank you for coming. <laughs> yeah, I know. Get the gang back together. We are missing one person. She's currently sick in bed, but we send her lots of love. Um, so I've asked these guys today to bring some poems that they have written and also some poems um, by women that inspire them. So I think we'll just talk about our individual poetry and kind of what inspired us to write that. And then we'll move on to the second bit. Cool. So, Leonie, shall we start with you? Would you like to tell us about the poem that you've brought with you today? Yes. I have brought with me um, a poem that is tentatively called um, The Meaning of Night. Um, And wrote it... Well, yeah, we all got together as a group spaced out, like Rachel said, during lockdown. And um, kind of came up with the theme of, like, female safety um, on the streets at night. Um, on the back of the Sarah Everard case and the publicisation of that. Um, and we were all basically just really, really angry <laughs> um, about it, as obviously so many people were. Um, yeah, and we needed a way to kind of process our emotions of that. And what better way than writing some poems about it? So that's <laughs> what we all did. Um, yeah, so that's the poem I've brought with me today. Would you like to read it? I'd love to read it. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so this is called The Meaning of Night. What does night mean to me? Well, night means fight or potential fight anyway. At least it doesn't mean light. Because there is no light here. Here there is only darkness and those lurking in it to fear. You see, to me, night doesn't just trigger fight or flight or necessarily equal a lack of light, but a lack of sight. Someone co- like someone covered our eyes with a thick black cloth and tied just a little too tight. As we step from fuzzy, warm slippers and into cold, hard boots, as we take the giant leap from the safety of our living room and deep dive into our potential tombs, because that is what we are talking about here. No tiptoeing now, just stomping, loud and clear, a rhythm for anyone and all to hear. Night is a potion mixed by the gods and those gods, men, of course, scoff, but what are the odds that it will happen to you? Oh, I am so glad you asked because 87% of women are sexually harassed and that statistic doesn't even include those unable to cast their vote. Silence like we were 100 years ago, except this time it's not food being forced down our throat but the inability to say no. It stifles you, suffocates, threatens to drown as you round the corner almost home now. You quicken your pace just a little bit, just a tiny amount, just in case that 87% includes you in its count. What does night mean to me? So many things, but predominantly that we can never just be. Capital J, capital B, just exist instead of endlessly worrying about what will happen to me, to my friends, to my female family. Wow, thank you. I think there are two things that stand out to me and I think they're the two things that I pulled out the first time I heard you read that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of us going into our potential tombs. And I think kind of what you were honing in on was like, I got from that was like safety in a club, but also safety coming home from a club. Mm. Um, and I remember all of us taking a massive kind of <gasps> in breath and just being like, God, yeah, you know, that, that, that says it, you know, that's the tagline for that, you know, kind of, this idea of thinking that like by engaging in what we would like to engage in at university and by saying yes we would like to go out dancing with our friends you know it's harsh but are we engaging in like you know something that could lead to our death and I think it sounds incredibly like that's ridiculous when you say it out loud but like you know especially for Sarah Everard she was just walking in the street and she was stopped and I think you know that was incredibly impossible for her that that was going to happen And I think, you know, I don't know if you have anything to add, Izzy, about that particular line, but I just remember us all being, like, so, like, shocked. I remember there being a beep. 
we all literally were like <laughs> um I, yeah it's great to hear it again i've not actually heard that read out since in the park the with, first time with our, park. Yeah. yeah with our pastries in the first yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no it's as hard hitting now as it was then mm. I, the the line that gets me is the the soft slippers and cold hard boots because mm. i'm like i'm an avid dms wearer and it's a real <laughs> moment like from getting ready when i take my slippers off and take my bed socks off and i put the dms on and it's a conscious thing like wearing dms it's a safe shoe on a night out like mm. if someone mm. comes too close it's it's got a kick to it like mm. um and that was the line that i was like yeah wow like the just the juxtaposition of the two things i'd never really thought about that transition as i'm getting ready to leave the house yeah until in your poem that was for me a bit of a reflective moment of why do i wear big bad boots mm. like I would never wear a dainty shoe on a night out. Yeah. And that does feed into that decision. And I guess looking back on it, you know, like in hindsight, we were in lockdown. We were meeting in the rain in the park because we couldn't meet in each other's mm-hmm. houses. And that image of the slipper is like, you're choosing to leave, like not only comfort behind, but safety behind. Yeah. And like, you know, the slipper perfectly encapsulates, like we're safe here and we trust each other here. And like all of those bad things that we can, you know, think of in our imagination are not going to find us here. Mm. And like the idea of like taking one shoe off and putting another shoe on, you're like stepping into a more like tougher personality to kind of brave that. Mm. And I think the other thing that struck me was like, you know, text me when you get home. And I think your housemate the other day was telling us a story about texting a male friend, like, oh, you know, let me know when you get home. Mm-hmm. And he sort of replied and was like, uh, why why yeah. do I need to do that? Yeah. And, it, you know, like even at the festival this weekend, like we had friends leave early to go to work and stuff and just like, just let us know when you get home. You know, they're driving home in the middle of the night. And, you know, I could see our male friends being like, what, what, what? Oh, okay, mm-hmm. you know, that's why. And it's not something that comes naturally to them. And, like, he reacted very, you know, I think naturally, but also strangely to us because he was just like, well, why do I need to do that? And, you know, yeah. to be blunt, that's male privilege right there, that he doesn't need <laughs> yeah. to let his friends know when he gets home. And I think, mm-hmm. again, that perfectly encapsulates the idea of, like, well, we do need to do that. And actually, yeah. if we don't, our friends will bring us. And it's so normal, I think, to say get home safe. Like I yeah. work in a pub and I say to the customers that leave last out of the pub, get home safe. Mm. Like, I, I worry. <laughs> it's silly, but it's not. Like, it's really yeah. serious. And it does go back to the idea of responsibility that we as a group of female friends feel a level of responsibility that shouldn't be ours. Like, we feel mm. like we need to, like, be responsible for them getting home safe and that that shouldn't be our responsibility it should be you know the people in the street that they're worried about really mm. so true <laughs> yeah yeah and it's really interesting isn't it like the phrase get home safe is like like you're asking them to do something that they actually have no control over like you're asking this woman on her own to get home safe and I'm like well yeah I'll try like I'll try my best Mm -hmm. but like actually that's not their responsibility either like they can only go so far in like wearing boots or whatever Mm, yeah like there's only so much you can do yeah so I always think about that phrase as well as like oh like yeah like I'll try (laughs) yeah yeah but also like I don't know yeah like I'll do as much as I can yeah Um, Katie our other friend who's kind of was part of this group with us part of what she'd said in one of her poems is like listening to music as kind of a way of like you block out that sense because it's a sense of safety like you know listening to music so you don't have to hear the footsteps behind you kind of thing and Mm. I remember us having a conversation of like well actually that's probably a stupid thing to do because if we're if we're taking our safety into our own hands and we're thinking about okay well you know I'm going to do as much as I can to get home safe so my friends don't worry about me but at the same time we're also going well what can I have with me to comfort me while Mm. I'm engaging in this and we were talking about you know music as the thing that kind of carried us through that which I also thought was really interesting Mm. Mm. definitely yeah and discussions on how loud you have that music like sometimes yeah. I'll just put the headphones in and actually not play anything just so I am aware yeah but if they think oh she's not gonna hear me like I I will kind of it's almost like a secondary defense mm. sure and I think yeah it goes back to the question of like whose responsibility is it like if you're the guy on the street or the girl on the street like why is the responsibility given to us to be the person that yeah. like makes sure that we get home safe and I know that like some men in my life that I've had this conversation with you know like, my brother comes to mind and him sort of saying well you know what can I do to make 
the girl in front of me as we're walking home like feel safer and he sort of said should I cross the road <laughs> should I walk in like a circle around her to get ahead of her so she can see me and I you know I was trying to think about what I would appreciate in that situation mm-hmm. and I guess I sort of said you know having an eyeline on the man would be helpful but like I don't think there's a catch-all there mm-hmm. like there's no way to make that experience ever completely safe I don't think yeah I'm just trying to wrap my brains now for yeah, what I'd want yeah. in that situation you know you, you think maybe you'd want them to say hi and treat you like a human but then also them approaching you and saying hi yeah can be quite an intimidating yeah definitely thing. yeah yeah even this weekend at the festival I was lying in a hammock <laughs> and um as one does as yeah as one does <laughs> as one should as yeah. one should when there's a hammock right there you gotta go for it and uh one of our friends had been swinging me in this hammock and I was very happy about it and um I was just lying in this hammock and this random guy came up to me and I thought it was one of our friends and I was about to say something stupid and he was kind of clearly very like intoxicated and like kind of came and like leaned over me and was just like oh you look very cozy but said it in a very kind of menacing way and for a second I was like I don't know what to do and then I just said well I was and then like (laughs) until you came over and like I remember just being like I can't believe I just said that like to have the strength just to be like yeah well I was and then you just came and ruined it like I was actually quite proud because our other friend that was there was like, he looked like he was going to get in the hammock with you. Like, and that's a very kind of lighthearted situation. Mm. But like, I don't know what I would have done if he had. And like, it's kind of that very easy situation that could have turned sour very quickly mm. can be applied to our walk home at night. It's like, you know, we've done that walk 10 times. We've done that walk, you know, 100 times. But that can all flip very quickly. And even if that guy didn't really mean anything by it and he just thought it would be funny, like he clearly just ran up and was like, oh, sorry, sorry. But like, I was a bit scared for two seconds until I found my voice to be like, yeah, I was cozy. And then you came and you were leaning over me. Like, what is that? And I think, you know, yeah, I was impressed because I was feeling like I I don't know what I would have done otherwise. Yeah, go you. I don't think I would have found my voice. (laughs) 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 I'm scared. Yeah, sure. Um, the poetry that I have brought with me to read, I think you guys have heard before, um, but I wrote this off the back of watching the film Promising Young Woman. Yes. Yeah, it's that one. It's I that one. one. <laughs> um, I wrote this off the back of watching that film with my housemates and um, we were all very excited about this film and we'd heard a lot of good things about it. And essentially, um, it's about a woman who pretends to be drunk on nights out to the point where she kind of can't walk and kind of needs a man to come in and like kind of help her or kind of pretend like he's helping her um and then these men will kind of proceed to take her home and she will kind of start engaging in like sexual activity with them and then kind of make them aware that she's in fact not very drunk and she is actually stone cold sober um and she's kind of turning the tables on like that abuse of power when it comes to like alcohol and nights out um and initially we were all like, yeah, this is great. Like these men are scared shitless, like that's amazing. Um, but as the film goes on, like events occur that actually kind of the reasons why she's doing this are much more subverted than you thought. And she had a friend in university that had been raped by a group of guys. And she was actually doing those things not out of a like empowerment thing, but more of a like anger like it was coming from a place of like I'm really angry that this happened to my friend um and she gets close to a guy in the film and she kind of starts a romantic relationship with him sorry for ruining the film but I need to explain it um (laughs) she gets close to him and it turns out that he was one of the men in that group of people that raped her best friend um and I kind of gave me this idea around who are the nice guys and isn't is a nice guy a real thing and a lot of the reading that I'd done from my dissertation actually really confirmed that like sometimes it is the the man in the alleyway but actually more often it's your boyfriend or your boyfriend's friends or your friends or that random guy at the party that is in your lecture it's it's someone you know it's someone that is likely to be known to you and one of the books that I'd read was called things we didn't talk about when I was a girl by Jeannie Vanasco and she actually interviews her rapist in the book and he was her high school best friend and he (laughs) raped her and she really had a hard time defining what happened to her as rape because he didn't use genital penetration but used his fingers um but it was a really interesting conversation and like she was looking back on these transcripts and was like I found myself like apologizing to him and I was thanking him for like 
you know, letting him be in my, you know, thank you for engaging in my book. I really appreciate it. And it was really interesting the way that she dissected that. But kind of the main message of the book was like, you are my friend. And actually I did mourn that friendship. And I was willing to talk to you about what you did to me because I missed you. Like, you know, you're my friend mm -hmm. and I can't believe that you did that to me. And I think it feels like a really big idea to me that like, as much as we know women that have been assaulted, we all also know a rapist, whether or not we know that. And I think it brings home the idea. Yeah, it brings it's, it's a niggle in that, isn't it? It's just like whether or not we know that. Yeah, but it brings home the idea that like, okay, yeah, as much as we've just talked about being aware of men on the street, we also need to be aware of the men in yeah, our lives, you know, the, the men that our friends are dating, like, you know, that kind of thing. And I think when I was writing this poem, it was coming out of a place of like, for God's sake, like, <laughs> why can there not just be nice men? Like, why is the nice man in that film also the rapist? Like, why can I not just believe that men are nice? So that's what, I know, small, small feet there. <laughs> that's what went into this poem. And this poem is called There's No Such Thing As A Nice Guy. There's no such thing as a nice guy because nice guys, when they were kids, made mistakes. Mistakes that we know and understand but are afraid to name. Does a mistake make a man irredeemable? Yesterday I watched a film where a woman was suffocated simply because she wasn't agreeable. If anything, she was gloriously disagreeable and a nice man's knee held the pillow in place and honestly I wasn't phased. I maybe even expected it in the same way that I almost expect to be followed home or tailed by a car, hollered at at a stop sign, stalked on social media or if it's not too much to say, raped at a party and the worst part about that would be that it would be my responsibility not to drink too much and did you know one picture of me drunk at a party would likely swing the jury in favor of the other guy accusations like that can ruin a man's life but what about the girl who has his name all over her forever is it my responsibility to judge when men are most likely to behave themselves not on a saturday night that's for sure do I really have to make judgments for them, remove myself as to avoid tempting them because it wouldn't be their fault, would it? They just couldn't help it. I might be scared if it happened, but I wouldn't be surprised. I have even thought about what it might be like for people who know me to be confronted with a picture of me titled missing on the news. Microaggressions, obvious aggression. Is there a difference? I can physically feel the desire in a man's eyes, usually from the seat of his car across the road. If I'm feeling brave enough, I might stare back or give him the finger, but ultimately it makes me sad that wanting to be devoured by somebody feels scary, that I can't trust the streets I've known my whole life, that handy shortcuts and back alleys are known as hotspots and local girls take it upon themselves to spray paint the entryway as a symbol of recognition because the councils can't do anything. Or that would be an admission of failure, failing to keep women safe in their city. And if we know anything about men in suits, their pride is more important. That is what needs protecting. You had her hips on a bucket list and now you've ruined the city for me. I didn't know what to say then, but I know what to say now. No is a full sentence. Wow, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. I know, I literally don't even know where to start. And that's the second time I've heard it. <laughs> it's the, the Brave to Look Back, funnily enough, um, the, the section you have about the guy in the car across the street. I was walking around um, with a mate of mine the other day and this guy was walking towards us and kind of staring at us, making us feel quite uncomfortable. As we walked past, um, he kind of turned around and said, what are you fucking looking at, kind of thing. Mm. And as we carried on, I kind of turned to my mate to be like, God, that was bold. As in, did you just look at him? And she turned to me and said it first because neither of us could believe, so neither of us had turned around. He had said that of his own accord of us just walking towards him and facing the direction we were going. Mm. But both of us had gone to say that was brave because mm. neither of us felt that we could mm. challenge him on the way that he was looking at us. Um, we felt too scared to do that. Yeah. Um, I think it's very easy, isn't it, when you're in a safe space with people that <laughs> you feel safe with to say, oh, well, I would do this or I would do that. Yeah. And I was actually at a party 
this year with someone that I know has sexually assaulted someone in my life and that person used to be a friend and like used to be someone that I interacted with on a regular basis and like knew that he was going to be at this party but wanted to go for the sake of the friend whose party it was and like he tried to engage with me like tried to have a conversation like reached out to me to kind of you know take me by the hand or whatever and just start a conversation and I just had to walk past and I like I didn't look at him didn't say anything just walked past and was just like that was all I could do like I'd kind of been hyping myself mm. up on the way there and was like I'm gonna say this and I'm gonna do that and I'm gonna tell him what an absolute dick he is for doing this to someone that I love and care about but I couldn't I didn't I didn't have the words and like I felt completely like rooted to the spot and was just like all I can do is like not look at him not say anything just walk past and I think when I feel brave and I feel like I've got a pen and paper and I can say I might stare back at the guy in the car or I might give them the finger and some days I do and like mm. you know with that hammock incident I felt brave enough to say something but other days I don't and I think like it's a bit scary because you sort of feel like on the day where you need that <laughs> bravery you might not have it and mm. I think you know that is a terrifying feeling but I think you know for you and your friend walking in the street both of you to be completely surprised that one of you would even dare to do that mm. is crazy <laughs> yeah I think yeah one of my favorite things about that poem is the last line the no is a full sentence because like I just can't count how many times I have been like no because mm. like no because and then made up an excuse do you know what I mean like yeah. kind of half it like no because I'm tired or no because I don't know you that well or like whatever it is yeah like I will just like use the first excuse that comes into mm. my mind like I literally it's so hard to stop myself from saying because mm. yeah you need to like you feel like you need yeah. to justify yourself no doesn't almost. feel enough yeah yeah your your opinion of no yeah is insufficient yeah. also the word no like in and of itself is a like incredibly important word when it comes to like sexual assault discussions and like there was a show on netflix that i watched for my dissertation which was called anatomy of a scandal and there's a courtroom scene and she's getting like cross-examined by uh, the rapist's lawyer and you know she's sort of explaining well this is what happened and like this is how I kind of showed him that I didn't want this to happen and he ripped my underwear and like you know she's basically describing her rape scene and all this prosecutor can do is say but you didn't say no you said not here which implies that you would like to do it but somewhere else and the absence of no in that case meant that he got off just because she she didn't say no and when you think about like that tiny tiny word being the key to you winning your sexual assault case it's absolutely no surprise that people don't feel like they can come forward because they might feel like they were sexually assaulted but they didn't say anything and their body mm. went into freeze mode or mm. like they said something that wasn't no or they said no and they didn't think the person heard them like you know if that's the key mm. like that's terrifying you know when you're in a situation you're not thinking about what you're saying you're trying to get mm. yourself out of the situation and like we've just said in situations where you're completely present completely cognizant even then you don't have the ability to say exactly how you feel and how they're making you feel mm. how are you supposed to do it in such a high high stress high trauma situation as yeah. an assault like how can you be expected to behave by the book by the letter as it were yeah 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 definitely cool well is you've got a poem for us it's slightly slightly different. different because when we did this i don't know if you remember when we did this mine i couldn't engage with the news I, it, it was too much and so i wrote a kind of girls night outs are great like <laughs> i love going out with my friends kind of firm like an absolute just championing of times with my friends which was great um, it was incredible which i really yeah. enjoyed but um when rachel came forward and asked me very kindly to take part in this um, she said something about uh, women's experience and I've recently just got contraception again after quite a long history of struggling with that and feeling very sort of like my I wasn't being believed at any point um, being quite hard at times and so I kind of wanted to write something on that mm. um, everyone can see that it's a bit of a mess because um Creative it kind of messy. just it came out um it doesn't have a title it's 
yeah, it is what it is. So let's just go. Um, last February, I followed convention, ditched the condoms and got some contraception, having not done so since adolescence after Rajevadon split my head in two and proved a possible death sentence. Five years it took to overcome that trauma, cast aside the former fear and dive once more into daily drug taking so that sex couldn't result in baby making after near misses with condoms forgotten or breaking that did nothing for general levels of stress. But what came next made me miss the binability of the latex, the no fuss, easy to trust rubber glove that relied on both parties being on board to ensure childproof intercourse. Yet ingesting the progestin I alone enforced, once home, I took the time to read the novel in the packet, glanced over the fine printed list of side effects and thought, fuck it, if everyone else can take it, surely I can hack it. And yet the mini pill robbed me of myself. It kiboshed my mental health. Within a week, I'd retreated, was depleted, lost friends as a new deep-seated self-hatred became entrenched in my head. I could barely get out of bed. The over-the-counter drugs sending me over the edge. Terrified, I rang the GP who said, Give it time, my body was adjusting, I'd be fine. On such a low dosage, it was nigh impossible to have symptoms like mine. And yet, there I was, and there they were. I'd taken the pill so as to be kissed, but it made me feel I shouldn't exist, that I wouldn't be missed. These feelings confirmed when they were dismissed. The list I'd been given of possible risks had said nothing of such a cataclysmic descent. A watershed head change that, in the end, my mum sent packing. Picking up my calls had got her panicking. Sick with worry, she begged me to flush the pills and bin the packaging. Overnight, I felt myself come back again, licking wounds that were never imagined and grappling with questions as to why that had happened, why I'd had no idea it could occur. Doc's tone on the phone had felt like a slur, inferring I was fibbing, fueling my misgivings. I wonder how many women have experienced this, or worse. Wow, that's incredible. I guess, like, you know, we know, or I guess I can infer from that what inspired you to write that. But I think I've always had such a stance of, like, I would never do that for the content of that poem. Like, I don't think it's my responsibility to take the pill because, like, I can only get pregnant once a year, whereas a man can, like, impregnate as many people as he likes. And mm. I just had this overwhelming feeling of, like, I really don't think that's my responsibility. Like, if somebody wants to have sex with me, they can wear a condom, and that yeah. is their responsibility. And, like... I'm not engaging in that. My mental health, like, mm -hmm. is far more important. And, you know, you've just described, like, not only losing your mental health, but losing yourself because you felt the responsibility of having to protect yourself from unwanted pregnancy when engaging in sex. Mm. Yeah, no. <coughs> Obviously, it's, it's, it's a personal choice and it, it shouldn't be your responsibility in, you know, even on the pill, I was still using condoms mm. for the sake of STIs and stuff. But um, it was recommended to me um, because I, I do struggle with um, like very extreme PMT. Mm. Um, I would argue it could it could possibly be PMDD, but this is another part of the conversation where you know I have to keep a diary to be believed, um, mm. and I now have a diary that's years long. Uh, it includes all of this around when I was on the pill when I was a teenager mm. on the pill but the fact that I have to keep a diary and I have to have a backlog mm. months long years long of how I've been feeling physically and mentally dumbfounds me mm. I don't understand why you know me turning up with those symptoms is not enough mm. like my word is not enough because they're not physically manifesting they don't believe it yeah like and I, I, I felt in such a quandary because it was like, um, you know, the doctor saying that that can't be right. Like, that's not that's not possible kind of thing. Mm. And it was my mum who was like, I know you. This is not you. Mm -hmm. Stop doing this kind of thing. Um, but again, it's that thing of like, it links back to like, why is our word not enough? Yeah. Like me saying this happened. This is how this made me feel was inadequate yeah it wasn't yeah. evidence enough yeah and I guess you're kind of embarking on a wider conversation of like how women are treated in healthcare but mm. I think the root of it is like you're telling a figure of authority regardless of it being male or female 
that this is what's going on in your body and somebody's choosing not to believe you. Mm. I think I had a similar experience of, like, my sister has PCOS and that's polycystic ovary syndrome. And I was thinking that potentially that is something that I struggle with as well and, like, went to, like, you know, a GP to say, I think this is what I've got. And they were like, no, it's, it's, you're going to have an STI. So I went on, like, two weeks of antibiotics and had to get, like, blood done, like, injections, all this kind of stuff, because they were like, oh, it's going to be an STI. Mm. And the STI test came out negative, which I told them it, they would. And um, I still was made to go on that, like, antibiotics, like, rotation, and, like, I couldn't drink over Christmas, which is a very minimal thing, but also, like, you know, I shouldn't have needed to do that. Like, me telling somebody, mm. there's a history of this in my family already, this is how I'm feeling, like, that was ridiculous. And I look back on it now and I'm like, why did I agree to that? But when you're in a position of like, well, this person's the medical professional, they've got years and years of training that I don't have. They've got understanding that I don't have, in quotation mm. marks. Um, so I'll just do it. And yeah, you know, I, I wasn't believed in that situation. I'm still waiting to be <laughs> believed as somebody that might have polycystic ovary syndrome, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same. It's very similar, isn't it? It's very interesting to like what we were saying before Rach about your poems mm. and how like we always feel like we need to have like a a bank of reasons mm, a because. Of, yeah yeah <laughs> a yeah. Because, yeah yeah um instead of yeah instead of like just saying no we feel like we have to have a reason and I feel like in the same way like you feel like or like, certainly like when I go to the GP about things like that I feel like I have to be like okay so these are all these things that are happening to me and they're really bad and I feel like I have to like stress about it so much mm for fear of not being believed mm. yeah um when actually like in the same way that no should be enough like mm. what i'm telling them at face value should be enough yeah at the same time yeah and also like if i was in that situation again and my refusal of that like medical treatment should have been or like should be accepted me mm. saying actually well no because i don't yeah, th- i that's don't not think possible. that's what i've got yeah, yeah. Like, like you know i disagree with you so i'm not going to take these antibiotics like yeah the fear of how that would be received by mm. somebody that's you know technically trying to help me like I can't really envision that yeah. yeah and I think going back to the conversation that you were having earlier about um sex education and how we divide kids as mm. when they're young like I tried to have a conversation with my partner at the time about how I was feeling and how this was affecting me and with my friends as well like I genuinely lost friends because people were like you know, you, you never pick up my calls, you never come out to see me, mm. when I didn't feel physically able to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there needs to be more of a conversation across genders about, you know, different contraceptions yeah. and effects that they can have. Because even as a woman, I had no idea that it could have such a dramatic effect on my mental health. That yeah. when I tried to translate that and communicate that to like men in my life, they were, genuinely dumbfounded they were like surely not like that's not a thing everyone takes it like it's so normal yeah i mean you see those videos online of like girlfriends showing their boyfriends like the information packet from their pill (laughs) and they're just unfolding and unfolding and these boyfriends are kind of stood there like you know dumbfounded and like they're funny videos and you're sort of like well yeah dude like Mm. that is the information packet for the pill and we sort of receive it as like humorous Mm. content but Mm. like that's it isn't it like you know they don't know and really neither do we yeah i mean i can remember being in class and being showed like this is a contraceptive pill and Mm. like this is the information i was 11 years old i don't think my contemporaries who were in the boys classroom got showed anything like that like the fact that these videos are out there and they're funny these are grown men yeah 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 they've been in relationship with women who are taking these pills probably all the time like Mm -hmm. Mm. I just yeah it shocks me even yeah yeah and I know that like we're barely scratching the surface there but I think we're gonna need to move on to our next section of the (laughs) podcast um so what I've asked these guys to do is to bring some poems from women that they admire just so that we end on a slightly more (laughs) uplifting (laughs) note um does anyone want to start I think I'd like to go last if that's cool yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Cool. I don't mind. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Great. Right, I'm not gonna lie. Mine actually isn't that uplifting, but it's incredibly relevant. Nice. It's just a okay. Pre-war. Well, <laughs> the uplifting part is that there's yeah. a woman you admire. Yes. Yes. That's the uplifting part. Yeah. Great. And I feel like again, this is probably expected from this podcast, but there is a huge trigger warning for sexual assault in this poem. 
Um, it's by Blythe Baird, who is like an American spoken word poet, very well known. Um, yeah. And it's called Pocket Size Feminism. It's actually so relevant. I'm so pleased with myself. (laughs) 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 The only other girl at the party is ranting about feminism. The audience, a sea of rape jokes and snapbacks and styrofoam cups and me. They gawk at her mouth like it's a drain clogged with too many opinions. I shoot her an empathetic glance and say nothing. This house is for wallpaper women. What good is wallpaper that speaks? I want to stand up, but if I do, whose coffee table silence will these boys rest their feet on? These boys, I want to stand up, but if I do, what if someone takes my spot? I want to stand up, but if I do, what if everyone notices I've been sitting this whole time? I am ashamed of keeping my feminism in my pocket until it is convenient not to, Mm -hmm. like at poetry slams or women's studies classes. There are days I want people to like me more than I want to change the world. Once I forgave a predator because I was too uh, too afraid to start drama in our friend group and two weeks later he assaulted someone else. I'm still carrying the guilt in my purse. There are days I forget we had to invent nail polish and change colour to change colour in drug drinks and apps to virtually walk us home and lipstick shaped like mace and underwear designed to prevent rape. Once a man behind me on an escalator shoved his hand up my skirt from behind and no one around me said anything so I didn't say anything because I didn't want to cause a scene. Once an adult man made a necklace out of his hands for me and I still wake up in hot sweats haunted with images of the hurt of girls he assaulted after I didn't report, all younger than me. How am I to forgive myself for doing nothing in the mouth of trauma? Is silence not an act of violence too? Once I told a boy I was powerful and he told me to mind my own business. Once a boy accused me of practicing misandry. You think you can take over the world? And I said, no, I just want to see it. I need to know it's there for someone. Once my dad informed me sexism is dead and reminded me to carry pepper spray in the same breath. We accept this state of constant fear as just another component of being a girl. We text each other when we get home safe and it does not occur to us that not all of our guy friends have to do the same. You could literally saw a woman in half and it would still be called a magic trick, wouldn't it? That's why you invited us here, isn't it? Because there is no show without a beautiful assistant. We are surrounded by boys who hang up our naked posters and fantasise about choking us and watching movies that we get murdered in. We are the daughters of men who warned us about the news and the missing girls on the milk carton and the sharp edge of the world. They begged us to be careful, to be safe, then told our brothers to go out and play. Oh, oh that is good. <laughs> oh, I mean, you lied bad. I'm looking around. <laughs> I also don't know about you, but feel like incredibly called out in a great way. But mm. just like, you know, keeping your feminism for the poetry slams and the podcasts and like, mm. you know, in situations where it rele- where it's relevant, it's in your pocket. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, that really speaks to me. Yeah, like, I really like that image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love the title. And I think, yeah, I like for me, it's both like a, a being called out, um, like you said, in a positive way but also hopefully like a little bit of a comfort because I feel like there's a huge amount of pressure that comes with the label of feminist or Mm. kind of those Mm. kind of terms and obviously like in today's society it's a very controversial term and you know how many men have like rolled their eyes at you and been like oh you're a feminist or whatever Mm -hmm. um but it is a lot of pressure and it's okay it's not ideal but also it's not your responsibility as a woman as someone who believes in equal rights to educate everyone. Mm. So I hope it's also kind of like a comfort to like when you are like, when you feel like you're the only feminist in the room Mm -hmm. or when you are like the only woman in the room or whatever, obviously like there is nothing wrong. There's so many great things about being like, okay, I don't agree with this and I'm gonna stand up and shout it from the rooftops. Mm -hmm. But it's also not your sole responsibility to shout those things Mm. from the rooftops yeah i think also an aspect of that is like 
listening and I was at the pub with some friends like before I'd finished my dissertation and one of them a lovely man but very forgetful was like what's your dissertation on and I ended up embarking on a kind of like hour and a half conversation about sexual assault with like predominantly male friends in the pub Mm. um and actually like there was a bit of me that was like I'm the voice to feminism here I really need to speak up but actually I learned far more just sitting back Mm -hmm. and letting them speak to each other as a group Mm -hmm. of male friends and like you know one of them was saying like oh there's a bunch of guys that I game with and it all turns very sexual very quickly and it's all very crude and I don't like it but I'm the odd one out and they were talking about the pressure of like sticking their necks out essentially and they were saying we know that what happens to women is far worse but there is a consequence for us to stick our neck out for them and like there was a bit of me that was like yeah but you should do it anyway but also that wasn't the point like the Mm -hmm. point was that they were openly having a conversation in a pub with each other about what they thought about sexual assault and I was like this is far more important than me putting feminism into this right now like this is a safe space for them to talk about it and they're not being rude they're not being sexist they're just having conversation about their experiences of like how they perceive sexual assault in a society in society and I actually thought it was really brave of them to talk about like that they wanted to speak up but they were finding that hard and they were actually asking the women that were there like how do we get better at that how do we do that Mm -hmm. properly which you know was great to be there it's that two-way dialogue that's so important because you know she's talking about and we've spoken about the responsibility that feels very much on us or the like the victim in these instances yeah but them saying what can i do to make it easier yeah that's part i think that's part of the battle too yeah Yeah, absolutely yeah definitely um is you want to go next yes i feel like this is very much a um it's like the guilty feminist i'm a feminist but i'm a poet but i read very little poetry and the poetry that i do read is either procured by rach and <laughs> personally edited by rach or um, <laughs> it's very very old um so emily dickinson was actually like a really i read a lot of her as a kid which is kind of random um and i had i actually had a bracelet with um i dwell in possibility on it um as a kid that i absolutely loved it had a little bangle i wore it all the time and i lost it and i gutted so i've chosen i dwell in possibility um I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, more numerous for windows, superior for doors. The chambers as the cedars, impregnable of eye, and for an everlasting roof, the gambols of the sky. Of visitors the fairest, for occupation, this, the spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. Short but sweet, but I just think it's beautiful. Mm. (laughs) Lovely. Love you, Emily. Yeah. (laughs) 1890 that was written. What a G. Stands the test of time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> cool, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to end on a not hugely relevant poem, but <laughs> but relevant in the sense that it's written by a woman and it's about poets. Um, but this is called Find the Poets by Tishani Doshi. I arrived in a foreign land yesterday, a land that has seen troubles. Who hasn't, you might say? This land with its scrubbed white houses and blue seas where everything was born and now everything seems as if it could vanish. I wanted to find out the truth about how a great land like this could allow ancient columns to crumble and organ grinders to disappear. Find the poets, my friend said. If you want to know the truth, find the poets. But friend, where do I find the poets? In the soccer fields, at the seashore, in the bars, drinking. Where do the poets live these days? And what do they sing about? I looked for them in the streets of Athens, at the flea market, and by the train station. I thought one of them might have sold me a pair of sandals. But he did not speak to me of poetry, only of his struggles, of how his house was taken from him, along with his shiny dreams of the future, of all the dangers his children must now be brave enough to face. Find the poets, my friend said. They will not speak to you of things you and I speak about. They will not speak of economic integration. They could not tell you anything about the burden of adjustment, but they could sit you down and tell you how poems are born in silence and sometimes in moments of great noise of how they arrive like the rain unexpectedly cracking open the sky. They will talk of love, of course, 
as if it were the only thing that mattered about chestnut trees and mountain tops and how much they missed their dead fathers. They will talk as they have been talking for centuries about holding the throat of life till all the sunsets and lies are choked out, till only the bones of truth remain. The poets, my friend, are where they have always been, living in paper houses without countries, along rivers and in forests that are disappearing. And while you and I go on with life, remembering and forgetting, the poets remain, singing, singing. Wow. Thank you very much. I think that draws this podcast episode to a close. Thank you guys very much for joining me. Thank you so much. <laughs> for more info on all the events, go to leadspoetryfestival.com slash events. You can find a copy of our program there and links to all our tickets, including a full festival pass so you can come to all of the events. Saturday day pass, Sunday day pass and a full weekend pass as well.